In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. This was a quote by Benjamin Franklin. Hello listeners, welcome to the ninth episode of season one of Itihasa, an Indic history podcast. And you're listening to Narendra Vikram. Season one is all about the Vijayanagara Empire. In the last episode, we looked at the importance of Tirumala Tirupati Temple to the Vijayanagara rulers and its people. We also saw the various roles it played in the 15th and 16th centuries from social, economic and political perspectives. In this episode, we will delve into the revenue and taxation system of Vijayanagara. The stability of any state or empire depends on its economic resources. Revenue being the major source of income, the medieval empires attached a great importance to its administration and collection. The financial needs of any empire increased with its expansion, not only for its administration, but also for its military requirements. So a variety of taxes were being imposed among which land revenue occupied the prime position. Let's start with Vijayanagara's agricultural policy. It's well known that Vijayanagara was considered as a land of peace and prosperity. The empire especially was self-sufficient in all matters of food articles. It couldn't have been possible if not for the liberal irrigation policy pursued by its rulers. The core of the Vijayanagara economy was agriculture and the state realized its importance quickly. So it built canal systems and funded directly or indirectly the irrigation facilities for agricultural improvement. Sri Krishna Devaraya himself speaks about the importance of irrigation canals and tanks in the 16th century Telugu poem Amukta Malyada which translates in English to a garland of pearls composed by none other than himself. Here is an excerpt from it. Quote The extent of a state is the root cause of its prosperity and if it is small its prosperity would increase only when tanks and irrigation canals are constructed and favor is shown to the poor cultivators in the matter of taxation and services unquote The imperial administration went to great lengths to improve the agricultural produce by funding deforestation forming new villages in its place and upgrading facilities for increasing the production levels in existing villages one interesting aspect about these irrigation infrastructure projects was the imperial administration's active encouragement of private individuals and private groups to undertake such projects by granting them concessions and remissions on the taxes owed by them as a result of the lands being irrigated To the private individuals and groups who had undertaken these infrastructure works, the imperial administration also granted them something called the Savanda Grants. This translated into a grant of one-fourth produce of the total irrigated area under a tank or canal, which was repaired after damage. These were very lucrative grants and led to an active participation of ordinary citizens in the maintenance of these systems. There are records from 1487 AD of residents of Tiruvamathur selling portions of their lands to the local temple treasury for the purpose of digging a channel from the river leading to the irrigation tank of the village. According to an epigraph from 1368 AD, Bhaskara Bavadura, 
constructed a huge tank with multiple sluices in the now Kadapa district. And in 38 AD, under the orders of Bukkaraya II, the hydraulic engineer Singabatta led the river Henne or also known as Penneru through a channel to Siruvura tank as part of the irrigational facilities. The Vijayanagara rulers also converted valleys into tanks and reservoirs for massive water storage facilities. There are records from 1533 AD of a valley in the now Anantapur district being converted into a tank and named Narasambudi. And there is another record of a big tank built to channel water from river Arkavati. The ultimate goal of the state was to increase the revenue of the state by levying taxes on such works and the other was to encourage farmers to grow commercial crops such as sugarcane, beetle leaves, cotton, pepper and other spices which were very lucrative to both the imperial administration and farmers alike. The encouragement of these cash crops naturally led to a profitable boom in foreign trade considering the fact that it was during this period that Europe was rediscovering the exotic Indian spices that were much sought after. The imperial administration also actively supported the people in maintaining the irrigation works and made significant concessions and tax waivers in the times of drought and flood. In between 1402 to 1403 AD, when few villages near Valluvur, Tamil Nadu were badly affected due to the Kaveri river flood, The imperial administration repaired the boundary banks and rehabilitated the affected villages with affected people on certain favorable conditions based on new tax assessments. There were also times when income from the tanks was used for their maintenance. In some cases, the village assemblies acted as the trustees of the endowments made for the maintenance of the tank and met the expenses by using the interest on the capital. Also, the properties of anyone who died without heirs was impounded and used for the repairs of the tanks. And if a group of people spent their own money on the repair of the tanks and wells in the villages, water was distributed to them in proportion to the expenditure incurred by them. For instance, an epigraph from 1410 AD indicates that in Devanagara village, now Devanagara town in Karnataka, Expenses incurred in connection with the annual repairs of the wells and tanks were borne in proportion of two-third by the temple and one-third by the Brahmins in Agrahara. So the water of the channel was also distributed to them in the same proportion. Now let's look at the land and revenue policy in the empire. According to the chronicles of Fernão Nunes, the Portuguese traveler, peasants were allowed to retain only a one-tenth of their produce. The remaining was squeezed either by the imperial revenue officers or the Nayaka feudatories as their share. Land revenue was mostly paid in kind, in the proportion of half the produce, and this half was converted into money at a price that was most unfavorable to the cultivator. The revenue officers made a clear distinction between wet crops and dry crops while deciding the final assessments. and that also decided the mode of accepted payments. The assessment on wet crops was to be paid in cash versus the assessment on dry crops that was to be paid in kind. 
the revenue officers also took into consideration factors like the classification of the land whether it was brahmadaya land belonging to brahmins devadana land belonging to the temple dalvade agrahara land belonging to military service or if it was a karagrama which meant revenue village then there was community property tax for allowing the village cattle to graze upon a set aside land owned by the crown or the feudatory a special tax was levied upon the shepherds as a grazing fee another tax was levied on houses and house sites it was assessed on the basis whether the house was a roof one or with small doorways or was a story in house with a veranda besides these the village also had to fund the maintenance of the special messengers and imperial officers coming from the imperial headquarters also important to note that the women of the day to enjoyed land ownership rights either through marriage or through family inheritance royal sanction too was given to some women when they received gifts in form of land an epigraph dated 1401 ad from basrur village now in udupi district karnataka mentions one tulva heggaditi the daughter of kote saraya was privileged with land property yielding 106 mudis of rice one mudi is equivalent to 40 kgs of rice so this was a substantial amount of yield approximately 4 tons of rice that today costs approximately 1.8 lakh indian rupees the number of mudis in those days was directly proportional to the social standing of the family or the house then there is inscription from 1433 ad mentioning about a kotayakka managing her landed property in basruru along with her children who were also engaged in transactions such as purchase grant and mortgage of the land and then another inscription from 1531 ad of a sankamma from kundapur taluk selling a land yielding 41 mudi to one timmisatti it's also important to note that many private donors in the empire were also women it also might be related to this land ownership right that women enjoyed now let's look at the industrial policy of the empire which fetched significant revenues for imperial coffers after agriculture as per research the empire was quite self sufficient and didn't depend much on imports they were most restricted to certain luxurious items like horses elephants pearls copper coral mercury vermilion china silks and velvet i have to stress on the import of horses as they were one of the most crucial imports on which the vijayanagara army relied on heavily the import of horses played heavily in the foreign trade and diplomatic aspects of vijayanagara with the portuguese and arab lands the local industries related to agriculture mining weapons of war perfumes handicrafts textiles fisheries were some of the important ones the specialized skills in most of these domains was well sought after and was a major engine of job creation hiring thousands of craftsmen blacksmiths and artisans again in most of these industries the traditional castes and professional guilds who were attached to their professions dominated their respective domains 
Vijayanagara rulers also followed an effective commercial policy as trade and commerce was also another crucial engine of economic activity. There were huge markets for both luxuries and necessities. Considering the predatory nature of inter-kingdom rivalry of the medieval Deccan, leading to frequent raids on frontier areas, the transport of goods from place to place required significant protection. And the state ensured every step was taken to see that there was no disruption in the flow of goods. The foreign and local communities handled the trade by working together closely. Muslim merchants from Arab lands were the earliest trading community to settle in Vijayanagara. They were gradually replaced by the Portuguese in different types of commerce. The port of Bhatkal was one of the most crucial trading ports for the empire. And over time, this was sought after by the Portuguese, leading to many military and diplomatic skirmishes in addition to machinations around the port of Goa. Though, after Vijayanagara's rout on the fields of Tallikota in 1565, the Portuguese trade received a body blow, after which most of the trading activity came under the Dutch East India Company and English East India Company on the East Coast. Many communities operated in domestic trade. Communities like Banjigas, Settis, Settiguttis, Mummaridandas, and etc. The administration's policy was to provide all facilities for commerce on the highways. Law and order was taken seriously and enforced effectively. The state even funded watersheds, rest houses, and also encouraged private individuals to take up the construction of these facilities on the main trading highways in exchange for tax concessions. There were also local fairs or called santas held on a weekly or bi-weekly basis by these local communities in proximity to the high traffic highways to attract customers. So they were like makeshift malls that sold all sorts of goods in retail and wholesale. And the imperial administration encouraged these sort of trade fairs as the organic decentralization simplified administration of towns or villages, especially from the perspective of tax assessments and collections. Most of these trading hubs, ports and fairs used to have a presence of an imperial agent who supervised the custom duty collection. The royal mint too helped in facilitation of this trade by actively minting a variety of coins like Gaddiana, Hana, Panam, Honnu, Kasu, in addition to the already circulating high-denomination gold coins like Varahas and other silver currency. Vijayanagara was one of the biggest export hubs for items like rice, sugar in powdered form like we consume today, wheat, millet, cocoa nuts, premium dyes, pepper, cloves, ginger, cinnamon, iron, cotton, calico textile, and surprisingly porcelain. From a quantitative aspect, the exports heavily outweighed the imports, leading to the balance of payments being in favor of the state, and logically resulting in a huge influx of bullion deposits into the empire's treasury. Interestingly, the custom duties were only levied on the goods actually sold by the merchants, and not on all the goods that were put for sale and the duties and taxes were not collected directly by the state. Instead, they were auctioned off to the highest bidders. 
which meant the state outsourced the tax and duty collection to other players in return for a hefty and upfront income. These auctions were not for perpetuity, it seems. Instead, they had to be renewed in intervals. This arrangement gradually veered towards oppressive collection methods by the tax collection contractors in their pursuit to squeeze more profits. This clearly led to tension between the taxpayers and the Faisal Nayakas or their subordinate feudal lords who usually won the bids to become official tax collectors for the province in question. This tension at times boiled over as open rebellion or village population emigrating to the neighboring kingdoms. There have been recorded cases of citizens of Vijayanagara emigrating to the rival Bijapuri state to get respite from the oppressive tax collection methods. It's important to note that the tension was more due to the method of collection instead of the tax rates themselves. But for most of the empire's existence, the Vijayanagara rulers remained sensitive to the concerns of its populace when it came to taxes and oppression by local nayakas or rogue provincial governors who stepped out of bounds to collect taxes. Many a times, once the imperial headquarters got wind of the news of emigration of villagers or cultivators out of the state, it used to send its agents for a thorough investigation and punish the errant nayakas or governors by either demoting them or confiscating their properties. And the state used to cajole the people who emigrated back into their old villages with generous tax concessions or waivers. It's also important to note that the imperial administration's ability to counter the oppression of its provincial Amaranayakas was directly proportional to the strength of the monarch. For example, in the case of weaker monarchs like Achyuta Devaraya, the rapacity of the Nayakas and tax collectors was unchecked. This led to the rehabilitation efforts of the imperial administration to lose credibility in the eyes of the affected inhabitants who emigrated to the neighboring Vijapuri state to escape the oppression. The Saluva dynasty's reign is recorded to have been the most oppressive period that saw heavy tax burdens placed on the people. This mostly would have been after the reign of Saluva Narsimha. As there are records to show that, he did send the imperial army to deal with the oppressive local Nayakas who used brutal methods to extract taxes. This is a really interesting detail that is rarely mentioned in some political aisles today and ends up as a classic case of cherry-picking of facts as and when it suits the political agenda of people on either end of the spectrums. Either way, there is enough evidence to show that even Vijayanagara was afflicted with a huge wealth and income disparity among its population. But overall, the empire was prosperous in comparison to its rivals. But that prosperity didn't trickle down to the rural parts of the empire to the levels it ideally should have. It's also important to differentiate between imperial taxes and provincial taxes that were decided and enforced by the local Nayakas. Having said that, the imperial revenue system didn't make it significantly easier on the people too when it came to myriad of taxes it imposed on them. 
most of the time the imperial orders or edicts on the provincial taxes were understood to be as recommendations or advisories rather than an direct order to be implemented at any cost while in the matters of imperial taxes it was instead taken as an explicit order and implemented effectively it's well recorded that sri krishna devaraya had abolished one of the most oppressive taxes of the day which was the marriage tax and this seems to have affected all castes people were supposed to pay a hefty tax for getting married erecting a pandal for taking the bride and bridegroom in a procession and etc this evidently led to a huge drop in the number of marriages hence population and a looming social and demographic catastrophe for many villages the poor were the hardest hit as ever this was a serious concern for the state's own future and prosperity so the great raya himself took considerable interest in fixing this it is well recorded that many of the inhabitants of these villages while praising the king for his concern and generosity also heaped their ire on the local nayakas for trying to extract the marriage tax after emperor's death so clearly even the emperors didn't have the final word always when it came to local tax collections this can also be illustrated by showing the case of the merchant guilds and the immense clout they enjoyed not just as an economic bloc but also as a political bloc these merchant guilds regularly acted as tax farmers and were empowered to levy taxes on goods manufactured sold and transported the state also used to appoint influential figures as heads of castes to enforce caste rules and impose fines on offenders and this revenue was then taxed this was known as samaya sunka the state even cashed in on superstitions among the people by playing on their fears of floods and epidemics a special cess or tax by the name maharaja tabalu was levied as a way to protect the people a record from the village of sriporantakam now in prakasham district of andhra pradesh mentioned the gift of two taxes by the veerabalanja guild this guild was supposedly one of the most influential guilds with its own headquarters in Aiholi, now in Karnataka. When the king wanted to give two taxes to a temple, he had to obtain the approval of the guild and its president. Women of Vijayanagara too were actively involved in commercial activities like business. A one Aravamalartha Nachiyar, the elder sister of a Kaikolar, had approached the Emperor Devaraya too in 1433 AD with a grievance related to her business and secured from him a copper plate engraved with the royal sanction of a sarvamanya gift of a village which was fully exempted from taxes women dominated the cottage industries of basket making tailoring pottery mat making and garland making and they were tightly linked with bigger textile production hubs and these women were known as bandanaris they also took active part in manufacture of arrows and bows another nugget of information is the financial year in vijayanagara empire commenced in september to october 
when the Mahanavami festival was celebrated for 9 days in a grand manner like we saw in the earlier episodes. Portuguese traveler Domingo Pais states in his chronicles that it began on September 12th and the new year began in the month of October. Fernão Nunes describes in his chronicles how all the financial settlements between the king and his nayakas were settled during the first 9 days of the Mahanavami festival in accordance with the annual assessments made in September. Coming to the foreign trade relations aspect, there are records of Bukharaya I initiating trade contacts with China and even sent an embassy. Devaraya II invited Abdur Razak, an ambassador from Persia, to bolster their trade contacts. And it's also well known that Sri Krishna Devaraya sent an embassy to the Portuguese at Goa in 1511 AD with the intention of securing an exclusive Arabian horse trading deal through the critical port of Hormuz which is now in Iran the portuguese had ended up getting a stranglehold on the critical sea shipping routes and hence gaining sole monopoly on the horse trading after muscling out arabs in the route between india and the straits of hormuz we will explore this aspect and the dynamic between portuguese and vijayanagara in depth in one of the later episodes Finally let's come to the taxation on temples. In the last two episodes we saw how many important temples were under the direct patronage of the Vijayanagara emperors and were given generous grants in cash, lands and kind over the lifetime of the empire. Having said that it's important to point out that all these temples did not get a free pass when it came to taxes. They were still expected to follow the financial regulations of the state. and fulfill any or all tax dues owed to the exchequer unless they were explicitly granted a sarvamanya or a tax free grant even the devotees visiting some of these important shrines had to pay taxes either to the imperial tax agents or the local tax agents an important tax paid by the temples was durga vartana or durga dannai vartana It was a tax paid to the commander of the neighboring fort in return for the protection offered by him to the temple villages. For instance, there is a reference to 60 varahas being fixed in 1541 AD as the annual protection tax to be paid by eight villages belonging to the temples of Pushpagiri to the Gandikota fort, which is now in Andhra Pradesh. Then there is an inscription from 1530 AD from Mompur village in Kadapa district now of the protection tax amounting to 235 varahas per year payable from villages belonging to the temple of Bairaswara to the same Gandikota fort so clearly the collection of this military cess from the temples implies the responsibility borne by the imperial administration to protect the immense wealth and assets of these temples from thieves robbers and foreign invaders the state also collected a tax called kavali kanike on the inam lands held by various functionaries of the temples the tax was paid to the state for performing policing functions this tax was clearly not the same as the protection tax we discussed earlier as there is an inscription from 1545 AD in the village of Mampuru 
which mentions both these taxes simultaneously. Even the livestock of the temples were treated as a movable asset and taxed accordingly. It was called Jeevadhanam tax. And the temple also had to pay another tax called grazing tax or sulavari to the state whenever this livestock grazed on the lands owned by the crown. A special tax collected from visiting devotees during major festivals was called kanike or parayam. This used to bring substantial revenue to the exchequer as there used to be thousands of pilgrims visiting these shrines during days of brahmotsavam in shrines like Tirupati. Substantial amount of seeds of this tax was said to have been granted to the Tirupati temple in the name of reigning monarch for the temple services. An inscription from 1553 AD refers to this tax on pilgrims of 18 castes visiting Tirupati and Sri Sailam. The collection being made at Ketavaram Fort on the Krishna River. The state used to also tax the income of prostitutes and regulate the prostitution business. During special festivals, the state used to tax this business with special rates owing to the influx of visitors. The state also levied various other profession-specific taxes on the Devadana villages and even taxes on the merchandise sold in the temple premises. So clearly the state derived significant direct and indirect revenue from the temples even after granting them massive endowments. For the state, the temples were a win-win asset in every other way. It is equally important to mention the fact the same state and Vijayanagara rulers in many instances also issue tax waivers to these temples for various reasons. So remissions and exemptions of the taxes were a normal affair as it's shown in an inscription dated 1547 AD from Komuru in Naugundu district. This inscription records such intervention and remission of certain taxes from the villages of the Agastaveswara temple which had been deserted due to unjust collections. With this we will end the episode on the revenue and taxation system of Vijayanagara. It's clear that there were varying levels of generosity and oppression on the populace especially when it came to tax collection methods employed by the vassals and feudatories of the imperial administration who had to be reined in from time to time. And we also saw how the state found creative ways to invent new taxes while selectively giving exemptions and remissions based on the situation. We also saw how the state actively encouraged the irrigational development projects by even funding them and by giving tax concessions to private individuals and groups who wanted to undertake such projects. So now the question is was Vijayanagara prosperous? Sure it was and most of the chronicles too attest to that. But it was not exactly prosperous for the poor who were far away from the greater city of the capital Hampi. The prosperity of Hampi or its surroundings doesn't seem to have always translated into ultimate well-being for everyone in the empire on a socio-economic plane. There were flaws and shortcomings in the functioning of the empire clearly. It certainly wasn't romantic or utopian as usually portrayed. 
the question probably should be were people on an average better off in vijayanagara than the people residing in the kingdoms controlled by its rivals i hope you like this episode and if you did please do hit the subscribe button and leave a review or rating wherever it is you are listening in the next episode we will look at how vijayanagara still had few more punches to throw around against its rival deccan sultanates even though it was badly wounded in the battle of tallikota till then this is your host and narrator narendra vikram signing off have a wonderful week ahead